Hi, welcome to In These Moments. I'm Timmy Oginera. And I'm Wale Emanuel. On today's episode, we are interviewing my father. So we're getting a little bit personal. And this is going to be the first of one of these more personal episodes. And we're just going to journey through his story. It's a story about life, about struggles, about poverty, about brotherhood and relationships, um, about immigration, amongst other things. Wale, you have heard snippets of the story. What are you thinking and what are you expecting? Um, first of all, let me ask you a question before I answer that. How do you feel getting personal? Nervous? <laughs> How you think? <laughs> I mean, because we've done like stories with other people. Well, what are you thinking going into this? Like, oh shit. People about to find out about my childhood. But I think there's a little bit of a buffer because it's a little bit about me, but it's more focused on his story. So I think it allows a little bit of distance. But of course, there is the nervousness of knowing that this is someone more close to you and this is your family member. But I also think it's good. I like to feel like we're speaking to people who are just like us. And so I think a lot of people will probably find that their parents' stories are similar or find other similarities just in these stories. I feel nervous, but I feel I feel good. I'm trying to be more open. My favorite thing about his story is it gives us a different perspective. We've had stories about younger people speaking about their parents, speaking about yeah. growing up. So for this one, we get a story about an older person giving their mm -hmm. perspective, going through some of the things that many of us probably went through with our parents. From the other side. Yeah, so it's really, it's really exciting. I think the biggest thing for me in sitting with him and doing this recording was kind of getting a fuller picture of things. I think as children, we carry our feelings and we have, you know, opinions about how our parents have conducted themselves over the years or whatever. I think listening to him, there were things about him and his story that I didn't even know. And so that was one of the cooler aspects of doing this. So without further ado, we're going to get into Akin, a.k.a. my father's story. My name is Akin Ogunono. I was born in Nevada, Iowa State, Nigeria. I attended St. Matthew's Anglican Church Primary School in 1967. I had a brief uh, stop at the modern school, like middle school in those days, proceeded to Ibolian Grammar School in Ibadan in 1974. I graduated from high school in 1979. My father was a farmer and a produce buyer. My mom, a petty trader. Growing up was really, really rough. I lost my father when I was about nine years old, and that actually delayed my education. You can imagine going to elementary school at the age of nine years old. My father, though not educated, but really cherished education. He struggled to give us the best in terms of education. My father loved me. When he died, I really, really missed him. Yeah, he was such a nice man. And uh, you cannot believe that in my village, my mother's children, we are the most educated. I have uh, six siblings. The first one, he struggled. He was a mechanic. We call him Big Daddy now. He's about 73 years old now. He did his GCE at home, did O-level, A-level, and uh, he found his way to Germany. And today, he has master's degree in mechanical engineering. 
He was in Germany for some years. He had his own company, very successful. In those days, you have to go to different high schools to get the form. You collect the form, fill it, and then submit. And uh, you sit for the uh, for the test, pass. Then they will call you for the interview. You can pass the test and not even pass the interview. So I went to this the high school I attended to collect the form. And I went the day I went to submit the form. By the time I came back, I told the principal of the modern school I attended that I was going to submit the form. And he said, okay, you can go. By the time I came back from Egbolian Grammar School, the school I attended, he said one of the boys in the school went to the school farm to eat pineapple. And he said he beat everybody in the school. And I said, oh, okay, you are not, you, you won't be an, yours will not be an exemption. I'm going to beat you too. And I said, sir, I told you I was going to submit the form, my high school form, and you gave me the permission. He said, no, that's, I'm not listening to any excuse. Then he, he beat me. The following day, I started having pain. I couldn't go to the school on Friday, on Thursday, and I was home for months. I don't know what actually happened. My brutus became so big, I think it was a kind of infection. My late uncle, he was working at the University College Hospital. He took me to UCH for treatment, yet the pain did not go. Then I was brought back to the village and uh, he used the med um, traditional medicine to actually cure it. My brother in the military wanted to kill that principal. But, you know, the community said, no, 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 you can't do that. He brought some military guys to deal with him. And uh, it was a big thing in the community then. I went for the test. I passed. I was number three on the list. There's a particular guy I will never forget in my life. This man took me on the bicycle to go for the interview. I did the interview. I passed and I, they gave me the list to buy the stuff for the school. But guess what? There was no how I would pay the school fees. In those days, you have to buy all the items required for you to be admitted in Houston. You buy the mattress, pillowcase, buy the sheet, buy this and buy that. I didn't have the money. My mother was poor, but my sister living with our auntie in Lagos said, okay, I can bring the list. And she struggled and she bought all those stuff for me. And then another problem, how do you pay the school fees? Because the school fees has to be paid before the resumption date. Then my brother in Germany promised to send the money. Unfortunately, the money was not forthcoming. So I was staying with my uncle, my late uncle. He now said, I can, since uh, your brother is not sending any money. I guess you have to go back to the modern school. I said, no, the modern school, I left. I said, no, I'm not going back there. Then he said, well, what do you do? But good enough. About two days before the resumption date, he told me he got a wire transfer from Germany. He paid the school fees. Throughout the time I was in school, he was assisting my sister and my brother in London. He also assisted. When I left high school, I applied to various colleges for my tertiary education. I got admitted to the Polytechnic Ibadan for my national diploma. I studied purchasing and supply. And then I worked briefly for like two years. And in 1986, I went back to complete the higher education, HND, higher national diploma. I went to the Federal Polytechnic Advocacy. I finished in 1988. And uh, I had upper credit and I went for the National Youth Service Program. I was posted to a high school to teach. I was teaching economics and uh, business management. I had a friend, by name Samson. You are both teachers in the same school. You are talking about, oh, you have a girlfriend? And I said, yes, I have one, but 
it's like I don't really want to continue with the relationship with the with that person because uh, she's uh, the type that doesn't have the ambition. I mean, she doesn't really value education. And uh, I said, I need somebody who is really serious. Something said, oh, I have a sister, my school daughter, that I will introduce to you. And uh, she's a nice lady. I said, oh, I would love to meet such a person. Something is from Oyo. So he said, oh, one weekend we agreed to go to Oyo town. So I stayed in Samson's house. It took me to uh, where mommy was uh, living. I said, oh, good evening. How are you? She said, oh, I'm fine. So my name is Akin. And Samson introduced, oh, this is like mommy Akin. You're both teachers in the same school. And uh, I said, can I have a chat with you? I want you to be my wife. She said, what are you talking about? You're just, just meeting me and you are saying, oh, I want you to be my wife. I said, that is exactly the way I feel. I said, apart from what something told me about you, I know that God has told me that you are going to be my wife. She said, okay, you know what? Uh, give me some time to think about it. And then I will, I will send something to you. I said, you don't need to keep me in suspense. Let me know. I said, just take it easy. The way she conducted herself, very polite. In my discussion with her, I could see that she's such an intelligent person. I like somebody who can think and uh, reason with me. The other ladies, she tried to pamper me with some things like giving me money, giving me food, giving me this, but I was not really in love with her. I'm sorry to say, she doesn't have anything upstairs. Academically, she was poor. I like somebody who can speak good English, who can write good English, who is smart. When I met my wife, I was uh, about 24. In the process, I clocked 25, and she carved uh, one calabash for me as a birthday present. The other lady came one day. The thing was hung on the wall. She came and saw the, said, oh, who is that crazy lady that gave you this? I'm going to break it. I said, break what? You dare don't do it. She took it from the wall and she broke it. I said, oh, you have broken this calabash. You have broken the relationship. And that was it. The first day she came to visit me, that was the day I bought my first bed. My friend, may so rest in peace, something. I didn't have the money to get the cab from where I bought the mattress. So we had to put the mattress on, on our heads. I mean, the two of us to carry it from where we bought it to my one room apartment. My wife, she was born a Muslim. She was uh, living with her brother. He kicked against the idea of marrying a Christian, but my mother-in-law played a very crucial role. She talked to her father, and my father-in-law being a very good man, he said, okay, I'm not particular about Akin being a Christian. All I want for my daughter is to have peace of mind, have a settled home, and enjoy a relationship with a man of her choice. My family went to our family. We did the traditional wedding and had our first daughter, Tayo. Then later, Tintokwe. Then in 1996, we had the third daughter, Oluwabu Sayo. So here I asked him what the experience was like having his first child or being a dad. And he goes into talking about the struggles with having his first child, especially seeing as he didn't have a lot of money. I was working with one woman, paying me 300 naira or so a month. I was helping her to sell wristwatch and some other stuff. At the stage, Taya was, uh, she had a um, kwashoko because she was not eating a balanced diet. 
at the stage I look at her, I say, oh my God, will this girl survive? Then I started blaming myself. So why did I bring this girl to life? I was shedding tears one day. I was said, oh my goodness. You could see. And the color was changing because she couldn't eat. She was not eating balanced diet. But by the time you had talk with, oh my God, things were okay. My brother, he came from Germany. We sat down, we talked. I apologize for what I did because I had to hide Tayo for one year. My brother didn't know. I was so scared to tell him because I, I knew he would be so disappointed. So he said, okay, for keeping that girl for a whole year, I'm going to deal with you for a whole year. And I have told you before, he's a disciplinarian. He did that. So after one year, I said, okay, let's talk. Okay, since you read marketing, you should be able to manage a small business. And then he said, let us try to incorporate a company. Think about the name. And I formed the name Jibatomak Nigeria Limited. I combined his wife's name, Barbara, his name, Jide, Thomas, and Akin, and it was incorporated as a limited liability company. We started the business and uh, we were sending vehicles and spare parts from uh, Germany, and I was uh, selling them. He was paying me salary, but we had a disagreement. What he was paying me was nothing to write home about, and I made him realize I was actually leaving his house. He was paying me 3,000 naira per month. That was nothing. He said, oh, I cannot pay you more than that. At a stage, I said, I wouldn't want to continue with managing his business. I've told you several times that the 3,000 naira you are paying me is nothing. I said, okay, let's sit down and talk about what I actually deserve. I said, I'm a graduate. My colleagues in the industry, I know what they are earning. I asked for like 20,000 naira a month. He said, that was too much. At a stage, I said, okay, let me just back out. When I quit, my brother, the youngest of the family, he came back from Germany. The little money he brought from Germany, we joined hands together and we started our own small business. And we were selling the same thing, the same auto pass. We were together for like two, three years. It was rough too. Rough in the sense that he was single. I was already married with children. I have to pay the school fees. When we sell, we make like 10,000 naira profit. My brother would say, we cannot spend more than 2,000 naira out of the profit. The rest, we have to put back in the business. I said, yeah, it's a good idea. But I told him, you have to realize that I'm married with children, I have family to take care of, we are single. If we share three or 4,000 naira out of the 10,000 naira profit, then the 2,000 naira is nothing to me. But good enough for me, a friend of mine gave me a loan of 100,000 naira. With that money, I was able to start my own small business. And uh, at a stage, I played the American Visa Lottery. Good enough for me, I won. I was one of those selected all over the world. But processing, it wasn't easy because it involved a lot of money. It was terrible. My brother, the one in Germany, was in the position to assist me. People appealed to him. People talked to him to assist me because it involved a lot of money. Getting the passport, paying for the visa. The visa fee for each of us was $400. I begged him to assist me. My wife did the same thing. We begged him. He said no. He said it would not help because we used to have issues, especially when I left the company. He said no, it would not help. I was still living in his house. He was doing some things for us, but he said it would not assist. Initially, he gave me 50000 naira. Three days before we went to Lagos for the uh, medical test, he called me and said, Akin, do you still have the money with you? The 50,000 naira I gave you? I said, yes, I still have it. Said, Can you give it to me so that I'll give you more? And I gave, him, I gave it to him. And he said, oh, you're not getting the money back from me. 
His excuse was that, oh, whenever he tells me to sell the item for like 10,000 naira, I sell more. I said, yes, I'm not saying no. 3,000 naira was nothing. If you tell me to sell it for 10,000 naira, but if I use my marketing experience to sell more than that, I'm not, I'm not stealing the money. If you tell me to sell it 10,000 naira, I can sell it 11,000 naira to make extra money for myself. But the 10,000 naira, I make sure I pay into the company. Based on that, he said he was not going to assist me with going to America. I sold most of, most of the items in my, in my store to raise some money. Then a friend of mine gave me a loan of around 50,000 naira. When I went to the embassy for the interview, that's another experience I would like to share. We'll be right back. If you like what you're listening to and would like to support us, head over to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, and tell us how you like the episode. This helps more people come across the podcast so we can continue bringing you more stories. Traveling from my hometown Ibadan to Lagos for the interview at the embassy in Lagos was really crazy. A friend gave me his car. I was in the car with my family. The car was driving from Ibadan to Lagos, just stopped all of a sudden on the third midnight bridge. I said, what? That was in the evening. It was running late, like about seven o'clock. I was going to a balindi. I opened the car's uh, bonnet, checked it. The battery, okay. I tried to start the car again, couldn't start. Then one man came when it was going to eight o'clock in the evening. The man came and said, what are you doing here? The robbers, they, they meet you here. At this time, they're likely to kill you and throw you into the sea. I was so jittery. I said, oh my goodness, what do I do? Then the man said, okay, all of you go inside the car. And he pushed our car with the bumper of his car until we got to Obalende where we slept I said, thank you so much. May I know your name? He said, your parents, especially your father, was good. So I think you are reaping the fruit of what your father has sowed in the past. You know, in uh, Yoruba land, if your parents are good, if they are kind, that kindness can be extended to the children. And then all of a sudden, he disappeared. I didn't see him. He was in the sky, but within seconds, he was gone. You know what is so funny? I couldn't sleep. My children were tired. They slept. But my wife and I, we were praying and uh, we went to the embassy in the morning, took a cab. I was interviewed. I answered all the questions perfectly. The person that interviewed me said, oh, we need people like you in America. Then he, he took the stamp and the stamp, he said, approved. I was so happy. And I said, thank you. And then I started to thank God. By the time we came back from the embassy, my wife said, Aki, you want to look for a mechanic to check the car? I said, okay, before then, let me just try to... See, I put the key there and I started it and the car started. We went back to Ibadan without any problem. This is something I will never forget in my life. So if you remember earlier, he spoke about his brother choosing not to assist him to raise money for his trip. He mentioned issues that they had. And now we're going to go into one of those issues or one of the more defining moments as to why his brother refused to help him. The robbers, they actually came to the house because of my brother. Once you are abroad and they know you are in Nigeria, that's one problem we have in that country. The first time they came, I was in the living room waiting for my daughters to take them to the school. We had the bell ringing, the house bell ringing, and my nephew 
he opened the door for them. And these four men came in. They came straight to me. They introduced themselves and said, we are international armed robbers. We don't want you to make noise. We don't intend to kill anybody. But if you mess up, we're going to blow off your head. My wife was in the kitchen. One of them went to the kitchen. One was with me. The remaining two, they went to a different part of the house. And uh, they took us to my room, locked us there, and took my wife upstairs to meet the white lady, uh, my brother's wife. One of them brought out the gun and said, listen, this is not a toy gun. If you mess up, I'm going to blow up your head. And then we were made to lie flat in my room. They took everything. Shoes, clothes, this and that. I had nothing they could take. They took one of my clothes. Good enough, my brother was not home. My brother went out. I guess they, they knew that he was not in. When he came back, he called. Nobody could answer. He called like three times. Then later his wife said, we are in Akinloye's room. He broke the door because they locked us in and then they took the key. He broke the door and then we all came out. And then he said, these people are lucky. If I'm home, I will have killed them, this and that and that. And it was <laughs> minutes after that, the police in the area, they came. This is a very tough man. He said, you stupid people, what do you want in my house now? When the robbers were operating, you didn't come. I'm sure you, you, you sent them here because you are all robbers too. Just leave my house. I don't want to see any of you. Exactly a month after that, they came. But this time around, they went to the company. They just brought some cars. We were the first people to import opaque cars and pass in Nigeria. He brought so many cars, like about 30 cars that time. And they, these uh, robbers, they went to the company. Some of them went there overnight. They almost killed the security guy there. He jumped and then he ran away. They wanted to take some of the cars away, but they couldn't. They broke some of them. They followed him from the company to the house. And I was in the bathroom. Then the security guy in the house opened the gate for him to come in. He was in the car with his wife, the German woman. As he was going to the garage, this boy just came in. They seized the, the, the gate from the security guy. And then they ordered him not to turn off the engine of the car. That if he did, they would blow off his head with the gun. Yeah, he was in the car with his friend and uh, his wife. So they ordered the three of them out. And then he said, to hell with you. When he yelled at them, I was hearing this conversation when, while I was in the bathroom. Then he said, we are robbers. We do not intend to kill you. But if you mess up, we're going to blow off your head. And one of them, he, he slapped him and ordered him in. And he pointed gun at him. He said, he marched all of them to the house. And then they took us to the same room, to my room. And they locked us in. They went upstairs, took whatever they wanted to take again. This lasted for like 10, 15 minutes. They told him, yes, you have some money at the back of your car. So they, they, they went away with the car and some other valuable items. When this happened, then he suspected that probably I was responsible. It was a big issue. I was crying. He said maybe I was the one that actually invented the arm robbers. My mom was crying. I was crying. I said, how will I have done that to you? Invite the arm robbers to come and rob you or kill you? And he said, because you know I'm no more working with me. How did they know that I have 70,000 naira at the back of it? I said, I don't work with you. I wasn't there. I did not even go there. I think based on all those problems you used to have, he decided not to assist me. When he decided not to assist us coming to America, people went to him, they appealed to him, he said no. 
We moved out the out of the house some few days before I uh, left for United States. We moved to a family friend's house. They were there for like three months and before they came to join me in the United States. Um, I left Nigeria on a, on a Saturday, June the 15th, 2002, and I got here on Sunday. There was nobody to come and pick me at the airport. My aunt that I stayed with, she told me before I left Nigeria, when you get to the airport, when you, when you check out, just go to where the cab drivers are and they tell them, give them the address. The cab driver took me to the apartment in Union, New Jersey. I was there for like three months. I applied for the social security card. Then I started looking for a job. I had to raise money to send to my wife and kids to come over here. I was going from one store to another, begging for a job because of my accent. Some of them would say, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> Good enough. I went to one 99 cent store. I met one Togolese guy. His name is Alfred. He said, are you from Africa? I said, yes, I'm from Africa. I'm looking for a job. He said, oh, okay. I will connect you. Then he gave me his address. But before then, I was lucky to get a place. It was a 99 cent store too. The man hired me. So I was helping to offload the, the stuff from the truck. And he was underpaying me. I didn't know. He was paying me $4 per hour. I was happy. At least getting something. Then when they called me. He used to call me Akim. I said, even though I corrected him, I said, my name is not Akim, my name is Akim. He said, Akim, what are you doing about your papers? I said, which paper? He said, your green card. I said, I have a green card. I have a social security card. He said, are you sure? I said, yes. Then he said, can I have a look at it? And I showed it to him. That same day, he told me, oh, you don't have to come tomorrow. He fired me. He did that because he knew he was underpaying me. I think the minimum was about $7.25. So he thought I could go to the employment office and report him and they, they would probably close down the business or find him that he was underpaying me. It was then I met this uh, Togolese guy and he introduced me to the company where he was working in Elizabeth. It's a Japanese company. They process uh, seafood. He took me to his, uh, his boss. I applied and I was interviewed and uh, I was told to come and start. And then they started paying me $8 or $9 per hour. I was so happy. And then I was able to raise some money. My wife and my kids, they needed about $3,000 to buy one-way ticket from Nigeria to America. When my family came, we moved from where we were living to uh, one basement in Union. The municipal, they found out that another family was living in the same house. So I'm being a one-family house, they didn't want that. So we had to leave the place and uh, we went to Aventine to rent an apartment. From there, we moved to another apartment. Then we, 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 we bought our own house where we are up to now. When we finished speaking about his brother, I asked him what his relationship is like now with his brother, and uh, here's what he had to say. He's a nice person. There's more in his backing than biting. He's a kind-hearted man. All this time they were having issues, he was so nice to my wife. You will still provide, you still buy food in the house, do this. It was only me. But I couldn't even believe that today we are best of friends. Up to now, he never said sorry. And uh, but when we used to have this problem, he would say, Oh, I don't need anything from you. 
like two, three times now, you, you call me, oh, okay, I need some financial assistance. And uh, when I say, no, I'm not going to do it, thank God for the kind of wife I have. My wife will say, I can. Look, as Christians, we have to forgive and we have to forget about what he has done. He did more good than bad to us. Yeah, we have a very good relationship now. So what did you think, Wally, overall, after listening? I really enjoyed the story. There are different parts of the story that stand out. I mean, the obvious one was the robbery. You know, how crazy that whole thing is. But um, I think the relationship between both of them was quite interesting to me because what became obvious to me is that your uncle was kind of a father figure to your dad in Mm -hmm. a way since... um, since they lost their dad at a young age, you know, so he had to, as the first child, he had to step up and kind of look look out for everybody else. Yeah. I could tell that your dad really respected him and your dad really admired him. I mean, there's that admiration there. But typical sibling fights and typical sibling conflicts, I just, I just find that, like, that that was really interesting. But how was it for you, though? Like witnessing, for example, after the second robbery it's interesting because i was so young i don't have as much of a full story as he does but i do remember it's it's so funny i remember after the second robbery my mom had a shop like she had one of those little convenience shops where she just sold household items or whatever and i remember being at the shop one day and seeing a man that looked like one of the robbers walk by i told my mom this and my mom said don't ever say you know a thief that was her response to me. So it wasn't like a confirmation of, about whether or not that was him. But it's so funny because when the robbery happened, I think maybe because I just wasn't used to... I had never seen a robbery before. I mean, I'd heard of robberies, of course, as a Nigerian. And it was during the time where it was more popular. Before we had like Yahoo Yahoo and other forms of theft. And it was almost like the movies. I remember we were getting ready for school, my little sister and I. And I remember my younger sister started crying. I remember them pacifying her. I remember all of us getting locked into the room, having to lie down, stretch out our hands. Um, I remember them asking if we had any guns in the house. My uncle had a rifle. And I remember them going upstairs to get the rifle. And it's so funny because you would think that you, we would be praying that we should be let out. The only prayer that we were praying was that my uncle should not come home. <laughs> because just as my father had said he was a very tough man my uncle is one of those people who's genuinely not afraid of death it's difficult to understand if you don't know him but he does not care he gives zero fucks <laughs> and so because we knew when, when you have someone like that in that type of an emergency situation that's someone that can easily get people killed yeah you want to make sure that that person is not around and that was our only prayer point was that he wasn't home the time that he was home he ended up in the hospital so i i I think that answers that throughout your dad's story there have been people who always looked out yeah it's kind of like a a whole village raising a child and making sure that the child is like taken care of it doesn't have to be money yeah it doesn't have to be food being there for them i think there's a lot of that in there because he spoke about friends who helped him out with loans even going down to the togolese guy who 
helped him out with his job. Um, I think as Africans, we have this thing where we look out for each other, regardless of where we are. And that's something that I, I know, I can tell that he really appreciates the people who like looked out for him, especially his bigger brother, even though they had yeah. a lot of clashes. But I think, I think that's, it's the interesting thing is it also plays into it because I've observed that even within my immediate family, like in my conduct with my sisters, and I've noticed this in comparison to like friends and other people that I know, where we have this thing where even if we're fighting each other, if we have said, okay, I'll do this for you, we're still going to follow through on our promise. Like, for example, when my father was talking about, you know, his his brother being upset with him and not speaking with him for a year, yet still assisting my mom and doing all of these different things, you know, it, it's this thing where you, it's like family's family, you know, and family is going to piss you off and you're not always going to get along, but you have a certain responsibility to one another that I don't often see, especially here in America. I asked my father, I was like, do you think he believes you now that it wasn't you? And he said, well, yeah, he, but he said that based on where they are now in their relationship. But he did mention that his brother never said sorry. And he said that during the time his brother basically said he doesn't need anything from him, right? <laughs> and it's so funny because when I was listening to that over by myself, I heard myself. Just this week, my younger sister and I had gone into an argument and I've always prided myself on being self-sustainable and stuff like that. So my little sister and I fight and I told her, I was like, do not ever come to me and ask me for anything and I, I will return the favor. I need nothing. And that is my mentality. It's on average, when it comes to like boring clothes or boring, whatever, whatever, I'm the person, I'm the sister who does it the least. So in my mind, I have built myself so much that I need no one. And so whenever I'm fighting with people, this is the first thing that comes to my mind. It's like, well, technically you don't need you. And, and my little sister called me out. She was like, you can't do that because you can't move through life by yourself. And you shouldn't. And I, and I was like, yeah, you're right. I don't even want to. But it was so interesting hearing myself in that comment because I was like, damn. We make jokes saying one of the best gifts your parents can give you as a Nigerian kid is to give you um, make you a citizen of a country like the US or the UK, right? Yeah. Being able to be like, you know what? If I want to go back to Nigeria, cool. If I want to stay here, cool. You know, yeah. we make that joke all the time, but a lot of us really sometimes don't understand what they went through to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So when we first generation immigrants talk about how our parents are tough, how they want all of us to be doctors, as ridiculous as some of those ideas and thought processes are, we have to deal with it with understanding too. Understanding that this is just them trying to make sure that, you know, we don't go through what they went through. Like yeah. We're really just secure and we don't have to suffer like they did because many of them went through a lot of crazy things. Yeah. And, and that's what I was going to say, too, because you know how critical I am of parents who treat their children's lives as merely extension of theirs. I'm realizing that as for Nigerian parents, it's almost impossible for them not to because a lot of their childhoods were rooted in trauma. A lot of them grew up 
in poverty even for me i know that i'm always i'm i'm sometimes critical of, of my parents and my father as well for you know just not being emotionally present because it's a lot of work and a lot of work and a lot of work but then while listening to this and listening to him talking about working in a processing place where he was it was like working in a freezer you know and yeah. and doing that for an entire year wearing five coats and knowing it's still not going to be enough for the cold that awaits you you know that's that's craziness but these are sacrifices that are made and i think for us it, it kind of puts that pressure on us where we definitely don't want to let them down but i think that in our assessing what our parents could have done better it's it's really important to look at the full picture you know how can you have time to be emotionally present? I mean, you should prioritize that. <laughs> but how can you have time to be that if your life requires that you work to the bone in order to survive? Yeah, this, this has been a really fun story. It's been a really heartwarming story. I really enjoyed it. I hope our listeners did too. Let us know how you liked the episode. Let us know how you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe, to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about us. Use the hashtag in these moments pod or in these moments. And also, we introduced something recently where we came up with a number where you could send us voice notes on WhatsApp. If you want to send us a voice note telling us how you liked the episode, if you have a story, and you know you don't want to send an email you can just send us a message on whatsapp 347-370-9360 it's a u.s number yeah so make sure you have the plus one if you're sending from abroad you can follow us on twitter at moments pod as usual follow us on instagram at in these moments pod follow me on twitter at king wally k-i-n-g-w-o-l-e and timmy at at timmy neuron t-e-m-i underscore n-i-r-a-n for twitter and for instagram there is no underscore thank you so much for listening this was a really good episode we're gonna be back with you in two weeks have a good one bye thanks y'all bye